Well, one of my favorite old dead guys, J. Gresham Machen, wrote, false ideas are the greatest obstacle, obstacle to the reception of the gospel. False ideas are the greatest obstacle to the reception of the gospel, meaning that there's a colossal difference between what, what this says the gospel is and what true biblical Christianity is and what people understand true biblical Christianity to be. There's a colossal difference, in other words, between religion and biblical Christianity. I'm often referred to as the religious guy. Maybe in your workplace or with your circle of friends or your family, maybe you get the elbow about being the religious guy or the religious girl. It usually makes me a little, little twitchy because that's not what I'm going for, but I understand where that is coming from. Being religious carries a whole host of baggage with it, not always biblical baggage. There are a whole host, for my friend uh, Mr. Machen, that false ideas go along with the understanding of what someone believes when they're called religious that really aren't biblical at all. And one of the main reasons I'm so thankful that we have the Word of God, because we don't make this up. We go to God's Word to understand what that means. So are we called to be religious? And what does Jesus have to say about that? John read our passage in Matthew chapter 12. We finished chapter 11 last week. We are moving right along. I know you guys were worried, and some of you are worried. There are 28 chapters in Matthew. You're going to see my kids graduate high school before we're done with Matthew, but it's going to be fine. We're going to go through it, and we are thankful that we have the Word of God, but we're, we're moving right along. Jesus last week had some harsh words for those in Galilee who saw his miracles right with their very own eyes and heard him proclaim the gospel of the kingdom right with their ears from the lips of Jesus himself, and yet still said, nah, they rejected him still. Jesus had harsh words for those people. We are responsible for our response to the gospel. Jesus also invited us last week to enter his rest, that famous passage, come to me, he says, and I will give you rest. He takes the yoke of our sin, our guilt, and our shame from off of our backs, and he places his yoke upon us. And he says his burden is easy and his yoke is light which is the exact opposite of what religion wants to put on our backs. It's the exact opposite of what the Pharisees want to put on the backs of the Jewish people. This week, Jesus will go further about what that means, what, the, what his yoke actually means, what's the meaning of rest, why is his burden light as compared to the heavy burden that no one is able to carry from the Pharisees. Look at verse 1 again. In chapter 12, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and eat. Okay, so some unpacking here. First, we see this immediately connected with the, the previous passage. Jesus was just talking about, again, giving us rest for our souls. Taking his yoke, which is light, and hold that thought. Now he's strolling through the grain fields, which is pretty common back then, strolling through the grain fields with his squad. They're hungry, so they decide to pick a couple heads of grain and 
from what I understand, again, I'm not a farmer by any stretch of the imagination, but from what Google tells me is you got to do something with that. You got to roll it in your hands. You got to separate the chaff, and then and only then can you have access to the grain. So that's what they were doing. Then they were popping these kernels in their mouths, all well and good, fine. They're hungry. They want a snack. No big deal, except for one big deal. It's the Sabbath, our text tells us. What, what, what does, why? What, so what does that mean? What is, what is the Sabbath? And the Sabbath is part of the Jewish law that mandates, big word in our culture today, mandates a rest from work and worship on the seventh day, Saturday in that case. And that was for Israel. It was originally established as part of the Ten Commandments, but it's also referenced in many other places in Scripture. So we'll read it from the Ten Commandments first. So jump over to Exodus chapter 20. Verses will be on the screen, or if you want to, jump around, warm up your fingers, because I got a lot of verses today. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. This is the law that God gave Moses. He said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So pretty straightforward, right? And he even actually references something back in Genesis, right? So he's, God's giving this part to Moses as part of the law. But he says, I'm not making this up because remember creation. God created the world in six days, and then he rested on the seventh day. So this is a pattern that they're picking up, but then Moses is giving it to Israel. God's giving it to Moses, and Moses is giving it to Israel as part of the law. But there's a pattern and a principle there. Hold that thought as well. Another passage, though, in Exodus 31, we see how serious this part of the law is. Look at Exodus 31, 13. He says, you are to speak to the people, this is God talking to Moses, and say to them, above all, you will keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it's holy for you. Everyone who profanes, profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days you shall, uh, shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days, again, going back to creation, the Lord made the heaven and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So, we see two things even from these verses, right? We see there is a Sabbath, right, that the Lord took, and Sabbath, Shabbat, just means rest, right? I just went on a sabbatical, right? Sabbath means rest, right? We see a concept of rest that God established at creation, but we also see the sabbatical that the Lord prescribed as a sign and a covenant for Israel as part of their law. 
And he said, if someone breaks it, it is punishable by death. And if we were to dig into the Old Testament, indeed, we do see a guy who unfortunately decided to go and gather sticks on the Sabbath, and then unfortunately, he was stoned to death because he broke the covenant. He broke the law of God. So yes, they are very, very serious about the Sabbath in Old Testament Israel. Even today, Orthodox Jews are very, very serious about the Sabbath. Everything shuts down Friday night, right? Saturday, nobody's doing anything except Sabbath things. If you were ever in New York City or anywhere else and you were stuck in a Sabbath elevator where they can't push the buttons because it's considered work, woe be unto you because you will be on that elevator for the rest of your life, especially if it is a very large building. Sabbath is a big deal and it's still actually a big deal, right? But does strolling through a grain field and picking a little head of grain and separating it and popping a couple kernels into your mouth, does that actually count as work on the Sabbath? Well, let's keep reading. Look at verse 2 back in our passage. But when the Pharisees saw it, again, what they were doing, they said to him, look, or actually in the Greek, it's like, aha, Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you, this is Jesus talking now, he replies to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for him to eat or for those who were with him, but only the priests? So let's let's pause and, and pick this apart, right? Pharisees are seeing this happening. They flip out. My question in this passage is always like, what the heck were the Pharisees doing hiding in the wheat field, like waiting for Jesus just to do something like this? Sickos. I mean, what are they doing? They're just waiting. And they caught him. They spring out from behind the stalks, right? He says, aha, your disciples are breaking the law of the Sabbath. What do you have to say for yourself now, Mr. Messiah? They're breaking the law. Okay, so here's what's going on. In order, to, again, to get to the wheat part, right, I think I explained that. They were, they were what's commonly called reaping or opening stuff. I told you I'm not a farmer, right? They, they, that's actually what they considered as work. But work according to who or whom? According to God or according to the Pharisees? Because here's the problem. God's law never specified that no one shall ever, by any stretch of the imagination, go through a wheat field and get hungry and then pop some kernels into their mouth. That's not in God's law. It's in man's law. It's in the Pharisee law, a.k.a. the Mishnah, which is what the Pharisees wrote in order to put a fence around the law. Like, it may have started sincerely enough, right? So we have God's law, and that says, do not work. And then the fair on the Sabbath just want to make that clear. We're all supposed to work, right? He says, do not work on the Sabbath. But, but in order to keep that, they then put all these other laws as a fence around that so that no one could possibly ever get to the actual command of, of breaking the command of, of working. So in case, to make sure, rather, that you didn't do any work on the Sabbath, they wrote 39 categories of work that you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath. Things like planting or cooking or weaving, including reaping one of them, which is basically what they accused the disciples of doing. So here's the deal. The disciples were not breaking God's law. The disciples were breaking man's interpretation of God's law. And Jesus takes issue with that. 
And he responds, this is so amazing. Jesus responds and he says, haven't you guys read your Bibles? Seriously? Like, what about that time when David and his men were running from King Saul and they came to the tabernacle? They entered the tabernacle. They were famished and exhausted and starving and there was nothing else there except the bread of the presence, which they were not allowed to eat, but they did. And the priest let them do so real quickly. Bread of the presence was on the golden table in the tabernacle. There were 12 of them. They represented the 12 tribes of Israel. They were baked fresh and hot every, fr- every Saturday morning on the Sabbath. And then the following Friday, only the priest could then eat them. Ergo, you'd need to bake more bread. So it was a cycle. Every week it was a reminder of, of the 12 tribes of Israel. But the priests were supposed to eat that. Not David. David wasn't a priest Jesus' point, your interpretation of the law, all the law is not scriptural. It misses the spirit of the law and enforces the letter of the law. David wasn't technically allowed to eat the bread of the presence, but he did, instead of dying of starvation while he was running for his life. F.F. Bruce put it this way, the point of Jesus' argument there seems to be that human need takes priority over ceremonial law. That's what we're seeing here. Hold that thought again as Jesus has yet another, I know I'm telling you to hold a lot of thoughts today, but hold that thought as Jesus has another example in verse 5. He goes on, or, Pharisee guys, have you not read in the law on how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and they're guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus points out, second example. Guess what, guys? What do you do with the priests? Every Sabbath, what are they doing? Working. Are they guilty? No, they're not guilty. It's not the letter of the law here. It's the spirit of the law. It's the heart of the law. And your interpretation of this is whacked. That's what he's telling them. He drops two massive quotes. In verse 6, he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Remember how Jesus back in chapter 5 said he didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it? But he's saying, now I'm fulfilling it. He says, even something greater than the temple is here. Who or what could possibly be greater than the temple? And he's saying, it's me. It's Jesus. It's God in the flesh. It is the Messiah, the one that the law and the prophets have been pointing to. I am greater than all of that, and you guys aren't getting this. He says, everything that was written, the law and the prophets point to me. Everything that you've known, the sacrifices, the feasts, the temple, they all point to me. I'm here now. I'm greater than all of that. And further reinforcing the fact that the Pharisees are missing the heart of the law, Jesus quotes Hosea 6, 6. It's actually 9, 6 in your bulletin. It's a typo, sorry. But he says, I desire steadfast love or mercy, not sacrifice. He says, what's more important? Even back then, the Old Testament was pointing to what the real spirit of the law is. What's more important to God? What's more valuable to God than just checking the religious boxes? God says, our hearts our motives, the spirit, not just the act. In verse 8, then he drops a second massive statement. He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
He invokes his messianic title from Daniel. And he says, guess what? Me, the son of man, the Messiah, the one who is prophesied to come, he, I, am Lord over the Sabbath. And especially Lord over your, your flawed interpretation of the law. He says, you guys are completely missing the point. It's not empty obedience. That's a burden. That's a weight. That's a yoke that no one can bear. He says, but I am here to tell you that I am Lord of the Sabbath. Nobody can be saved by obeying God's law, so there has to be someone going who will obey God's law for us perfectly, and that is Jesus the Messiah. So I'm going to say this. Jesus is Lord of God's law. Jesus is Lord of God's law. It's hard to over, overstate the importance of God's law. God's, like, we have laws, right? Sometimes they get followed, sometimes they don't, right? We have laws. But God's law is a reflection of God's character. It's not just empty rules and regulations. We see his holiness, we see his justice, we see his, his wrath in those laws. But we also then see his mercy and his grace in those laws. Therefore, we can't really understand God's law fully without looking at it through Jesus. This is what he's saying to the Pharisees. Because you want to understand the law fully, you've got to look through me because I'm the guy who came to fulfill it. They're not getting that. The law was put in place to give structure and identity to God's people, the nation of Israel, but that got twisted, right? And we commonly divide the law into three buckets, the civil law, ceremonial law, and the moral law. We need to be mindful of God's law even today. I know as non-denominational, sometimes we're like, I don't know what to do with God's law. It's over there. Is it still in effect or not? It's scary and weird. And I read, I read Leviticus once, and I didn't even get through it. And the civil law was for ethnic geographic Israel. This has been completely fulfilled in Jesus' coming, but... It contains a lot of wisdom for today. We see this in, like, like it or not, like our basis of law is based on civil law, God's law. No testimony should be established without two or three witnesses, stuff like that. We see it. God's a God of justice. Some applies, some doesn't. The ceremonial law governed the worship of Israel, sacrifices, feasts, all of that. Feasts? Feasts. That has been completely fulfilled in Jesus. But that leaves us with the moral law, which is, which is reflected in the Ten Commandments and other things that Jesus and the apostles say in the New Testament. That is still in effect. We're still called to holiness. But none of the law can save us. It only points out our inability to obey it. That's why it was necessary for Jesus, the Messiah, to come to fulfill the law and do what the law could not do, extend the grace of God in someone obeying it for us. Look at Romans. I put it in your bulletins. 8, 3 and 4. It says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see that? It's the plan of God. It's the gospel. The law was never designed to save, and Paul comes right out and says that. That's the design of the gospel, to do what the law could not do. Even though the law is good and perfect and reflects God's character, it was never designed to save us from God. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly, never broke God's law. 
contrary to what someone like Stephen Furtick will say, that God broke God's law for love, which is nonsense. You should not listen to Stephen Furtick, just for the record. God did, Jesus did not break any part of God's law. We have to be completely clear about that. What about us? Can we make our own laws? Our own interpretation of God's law? Can we be like the Pharisees? Can we hold people to our own interpretation and thereby inflict our own wrath on people who break our interpretation of God's law? When our kids act out, who are they sinning against more, us or God? But yet, maybe we inflict the holy wrath of mom and dad for daring to break our law. When our spouses fail to meet our expectations, do we tear into them with the self-righteousness of the Pharisees? And Jesus brings it back to the heart of the law. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And Jesus is Lord of God's law, and he's the only one who can correct their interpretation, and that's what he does. That doesn't mean, now I know some of you are getting nervous, that doesn't mean that we're not, hold, we're not held to standards. God's moral law is still in effect. It's his standard, it's his character, but we can't lose mercy and grace in the process. That's the mistake the Pharisees are making. We can't hold people to a level of expectations that even God doesn't. That's the mistake that the Pharisees are making. That's the reason God has given us Jesus. No one meets that standard except him. This is what we see of the concept, really, of the Sabbath itself. That's what started this whole fight. And I want to just take a, a moment to look at the Sabbath, just in, because in, in, we're not really taught on the Sabbath. But the Sabbath is still very misunderstood. People have varying convictions about the Sabbath and their understanding of it, their background. But let's keep in mind, again, there's a world of difference between the Sabbath and a Sabbath. The Sabbath was the Jewish Sabbath, part of God's ceremonial law. We can't keep the Sabbath. Otherwise, we'd be here on a Saturday, and we would have to make sacrifices, and we'd also have to find a way of executing people who broke the Sabbath. We're not really into that, I hope, right? But, but a Sabbath, that's the heart of Jesus. A Sabbath is rest. A Sabbath is devotion. A Sabbath we see in Genesis, again, where God, God himself, God didn't need a day off, okay? He took a day off to give us a pattern to see that. Christians are no longer then, therefore, under the Sabbath. If we jump real quick, so you know I'm not making this up, in Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians... Colossians chapter 2, 16 and 17, says this, Therefore, this is Paul talking, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or watch this or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Right, so the Sabbath is included with all of that. The Sabbath is included with all that as a shadow that will come in Jesus Christ. But I will tell you, the church is in dire need. Christians are in dire need of a regular Sabbath. Culture today is one of frantic busyness where devotion to God gets shoved into whatever margin is left. And bodies and souls, they take the toll. We're exhausted, our souls are exhausted, and we try and fit God in around the margins of our 
overly booked lives. We see a pattern all the way back in creation of one day as holy as set apart for God and for rest. Church, why would this not continue? And if Jesus Christ is Lord of God's law, he is Lord of our lives as well. Rest is in very, very short supply in our culture, and it is killing us. We are slowly eroding ourselves with busyness at an unhealthy pace. Our hearts and souls, again, are tired, and God has given us a day that should be different. And church, Sundays should look different for us. It's the Lord's day. We see the the New Testament pattern of the church meeting together on Sunday. Why? Because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. So we, we, we meet together. That's why we're doing it this morning. We set aside a day for devotion to God and rest for our souls. And then parallel passage in Mark, we see Jesus even saying more clearly. Look at Mark, 20, Mark 2, 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is even Lord of the Sabbath. Right? It's not a law to be checked anymore. Jesus is here. Right? But it's made for us, for our good, for our growth, for our rest. And so church, how seriously are we treating building ourselves up in the faith by prioritizing Sundays? Or, or is it just another day for us to get things done? And I'll give you three quick things about a Sabbath. Plan, prepare, and prioritize. Plan to keep Sundays as free as possible uh, for worship. Does that ever mean you can miss church? No, that's not what I'm saying, okay? No, we have vacations, we have things come up, but more than likely, do we even think about, well, if I do that, that means I'm going to miss church again. Is that okay? That's what I'm talking about here. Prioritize it too. Prioritize the things of the Lord on Sundays. Well, if I fill my, after church, if I'm doing this, 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 and this, is that really building up my soul in the faith? Is that really giving me any time to rest? Or am I just going flat out like every other day? And then also, uh, I'm sorry, what did I say? Prepare, (laughs) plan, prepare, and prioritize. Prepare. Like, do we even think on Saturdays, like tomorrow I'm going to be with the body of Christ? Think about that. Think about what's going to happen. Maybe read the passage. Maybe think like it's going to be communion or something. Right? All these things, plan, prepare, and prioritize. Real quick, just to give us some, some guidelines there. I can't tell you exactly what that looks like for you. That's the danger of the Pharisees. They want to tell you exactly what that's supposed to look like for you. I can't tell you that. But I do know that we are in dire need, not just us, not just Highlands, but our culture is in dire need of a planned, prepared, and prioritized Sabbath. Legalism strips the heart out of the law and makes it about empty obedience. And God is always going to bring it back to the heart. And that's where he goes next. Look right at verse 9. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. See their traps? He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep, and it falls in a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is man than sheep? So, Jesus says, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to them, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy as the other hand. 
So Jesus heads into a local synagogue. I was, somebody asked me if I had maps and pictures today. Sorry, it's not a map and picture day. We don't know where this synagogue was, possibly Capernaum. Synagogues were local meeting places for study and for community. We still see them today. He runs into a man with a, a paralyzed hand, so he can't use his hand, and it's probably withered and shrunk from atrophy. And before anything else can happen, here are the Pharisees right there. And what are you going to do, Jesus? Here's another theological question for you, Jesus. Is it lawful for you to heal this person on the Sabbath? And, and again, you're probably betting by now, according to their law, no, it's not. Unless somebody's dying in front of you on the Sabbath, it can wait. It can wait until Sunday morning when the Sabbath is over. So a withered hand, a paralyzed hand, doesn't really qualify as something that's life-threatening. So Jesus, what are you going to do? Because we're ready. We got you. We're here. What are you going to do? And Jesus, again, goes back with another example. He says, if you had a sheep and it fell in a hole, would you not lift it out on the Sabbath? It's a little weird for us. We're in 2021, right? But they used to big, they used to dig giant pits all around their property for predators like wolves and foxes and other things to fall into then, right? Sometimes sheep are dumb, right? Sometimes they fall into that pit as well. But it's one of your sheep. You're not just gonna be like, oh well, eh, sorry, Bo Peep. It's the Sabbath. I will see you tomorrow. Lots of luck. Here's some, you know, supplies. It's, you need that sheep. You're going to lift it out of there. It was funny that that was actually one of their laws in the Mishnah that nobody actually ever followed anymore because it's like it doesn't make sense. Sheep are expensive. You're just going to let a sheep die in a hole? No, you're not. You're going to lift them out. You don't care if it's Sabbath or not. And Jesus says nobody would just leave him in there. And then he uses one of his classic how much more arguments. He says how much more, how much more valuable is a human being than a sheep? And he healed this man. He commands the man to stretch out his hand, and instantly it's healed, as good as the other hand. And what did this prove? It proved that Jesus was right. It proved that God ordained, the Father ordained this miracle to show the Pharisees that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, and he is who he says he is. And his interpretation of the law is right, and theirs is not. It's proof that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. It also proves that people are more valuable to God, and God does desire mercy and not sacrifice. Imagine being so cold that you walk right by someone who needs help, and you can't do it because it's your Sabbath. And Jesus says, that's ridiculous. How did the Pharisees take it? Not so well. Look at verse 14, Matthew 12. It says, but it, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him or how to kill him. That escalated quickly. I mean, this should strike us as insanity. They want to destroy him and kill him because he healed a man on the Sabbath. And more than that, he proved that he was right and they were wrong. He proved that he was the Messiah, and now everything will change. And they are too spiritually proud to see the Messiah right there in front of them, so they want to destroy him. Ultimately, we know that that's going to happen. They're going to put him on the cross. And what sort of twisted spiritual blindness is that, that they would do that? I say it's called religion, is what it's called. 
Religion knows no mercy. Religion only knows heartless obedience. Religion says, here's our standard, and if you don't meet our standard, you are less than. You are not worthy. Religion shows no mercy. Religion says that you must look like us, eat like us, talk like us. You must follow these rules and expectations that we have made, and then maybe, just maybe, we will accept you the madness of religion that ended up putting the Messiah himself on the cross. It's the madness of religion that continues to draw millions away from the truth of who the Bible actually says Jesus is. It's the madness of religion that's leading millions of people to hell, thinking that God would be happy with them because of what they do or what they wear or how they worship or what they say instead of whose they are. There's only one cure for religion, and it's the gospel. I'll try to frame it this way as we land this plane. The gospel does what religion can't. The gospel does what religion can't. Religion in the church holds people to a standard that even God does not. That's what we see here in the Pharisees. It holds people to our own standards, our own expectations. Tim Keller writes in his epic book, The Reason for God, he says, There's a great gulf, I think I have a quote too for that, there's a great gulf between the understanding that God accepts us because of our effort and the understanding that God accepts us because of what Jesus has done. Religion operates on the principle, I obey, therefore I am accepted by God. But the operating principle of the gospel says, I'm accepted by God because of what Christ has done, therefore I obey. You see that flip? Keller's brilliant in this. That's what the world thinks of Christianity. That you better just check those boxes and you better keep God happy and maybe, just maybe, God will let you into heaven when you die. The only problem with that is the Bible. Because it never says that. The Bible says, Christ has done what the law cannot. We believe in him and we are justified and therefore, therefore then we go out and live a life of holiness and sacrifice because of who we are. And church, which one of us, or which category is this this morning? Maybe you've never understood that there's a difference between religion and what the Bible actually says. Maybe today's your day where you get that. Maybe your background is one of religion. Maybe your background did say you have all these rules that you have to do or else God won't be happy with you. Maybe today's your day where that is understood. And both of these extremes miss the point that Jesus is Lord of God's law. God's law reflects God's character, and we see the ultimate expression of God's character in who? In Jesus. And so first, church, we must come to Jesus. We must accept that God accepts us based upon what Jesus does, not what we do. In other words, the gospel does what the law cannot But then, after we are accepted by God through faith in Jesus Christ, what? We do the work he's called us to do. We live the lives he's called us to do. But we don't do that to earn his favor. We do that because we've been favored through faith in Jesus Christ. It's who we are. It becomes our identity, not just an activity. We've got to remember that. And we go back to that passage in Romans again. Look at that passage one more time as we close in in Romans, right in your bulletin. Let this sink in. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Here's how. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, took our sin, condemned sin in the flesh 
in order that the righteous requirement of law may be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the spirit, or the flesh, rather, but watch this, who walk according to the spirit. Then we walk according to Religion puts behavior, puts the, the cart before the horse. Religion puts behavior and the standard of behavior before renewal and regeneration. And that's not the way it works. We serve God out of a renewed and regenerated heart. And then we have an appetite and the Holy Spirit and all those things to do those things. Therefore, even though I am not under the Sabbath, I'm going to joyfully keep a Sabbath. I'm going to plan for it. I'm going to prepare for it. I'm going to prioritize it. Why? For the edification of my soul, for the renewal of my body and my mind. Therefore, I'm going to strive to live a life that matches Jesus, matches my identity, a life of walking by the Spirit set apart for holiness, not one where I try to prove my worth for God, but one that counts me worthy because I'm united to God through faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel does what religion can't. Let that seep into our souls today. Father, we we thank you so much for this word. It is a uh, a tough confrontation that we see, and there's much to learn, Lord. We thank you that your word is clear. We thank you for such a clear passage in Romans, which tells us that the law could never save us. The law could never reconcile us back to you. The law only shows your holiness and your wrath, but we see beautiful passages in Hosea, and we see from the words of Jesus, God himself, reminding us, that the truth of the law is you desire steadfast love. You desire mercy above our sacrifices. Lord, you don't want our sacrifices if they're not from a renewed heart that is devoted to you. That's empty legalism. That's religion. Help us to know the difference between religion and help us to delight in the hope and the light burden of the gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.